0: The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com
1: and use the promo code The Gist. It's Wednesday, October 1st, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. There's a new ad out today comparing Florida gubernatorial candidates to wedding dresses. A parody of Say Yes to the Dress, comparing Rick Scott, two first names, with Charlie Crist, close to two first names, as if each were a wedding dress. Let's see what our bridezilla slash young female Floridian voter decides.
0: The Rick Scott is perfect. Rick Scott is becoming a
2: trusted brand. He has new ideas that don't break your budget.
1: Here are the headlines. L says, Here is the GOP's delightfully offensive say yes to the dress political ad. The Orlando Weekly says, Say no to sexist pandering. College Republicans, they were the ones who made the ad, release hilariously bad ad for Rick Scott, comma, insult women. And New York Magazine says the ads are meant to pander to young voters by capturing their attention in, quote, a culturally relevant way which in this example means recasting tired tropes in a political context so that the presumably dumb millennial women who watch TLC's wedding shows will, like, totally vote for Rick Scott. All right, listen, what's the problem here? Is the problem that we're doing a parody of a popular TV show to get a candidate elected? Or is the problem that there's a popular TV show about whining and complaining about $5,000 dresses? And pandering? We don't want to be pandered to? We're a country where the waist sizes of our jeans are four inches smaller than our actual waists because we want to feel good about our waists. So you're saying that pandering is a bad philosophy to get people elected? I don't know if this dumb commercial will get one vote for Rick Scott, but it's not offensive, or it's no more offensive than the source material, its parroting, or the Rick Scott agenda. And I got to tell you, the neckline on that Charlie Crist is a little daring. Today on the show, candy, all about candy. And in the spiel, a famous designer takes on tissues. But first, Attorney General Week continues. Forthwith. (laughs) Forthwith. In Missouri today, the attorney general announced he's reconsidering policing tactics and beginning to look at minority representation on police forces throughout the state. In Indiana, their state attorney general announced an initiative to fight home scams. And New York's attorney general is spearheading efforts against mortgage fraud. And in states like Arizona and Michigan, they're having an attorney general election. Debates are being held. Well, that's on the state level. Attorney generals are doing a lot, they have a lot of leeway, they set an agenda. On the federal level, well, Eric Holder is stepping down, and there's the Washington game of who might replace him. But who's spelling out a bold new agenda for the office? No one seems to be looking at the job as an opportunity to make big changes that help people, as much as just a big job to be debated by Congress. Why are state attorneys general seemingly so much more vital than the U.S. attorney general? Well, joining me now is Doug Gansler. He's the attorney general for the state of Maryland. He's also president of the National Association of Attorneys General. Hello, Mr. Gansler. How are you? I'm well. So I don't know if U.S. attorney generals ever look at state attorney generals and say, with a little bit of wistfulness, my gosh, look at all the leeway he has. Look at all the agenda setting that guy or that woman can do. Do Do you think maybe in their heart of hearts they do that? I think there's a little of
0: that, and the reason why is because, yes, the Attorney General of the United States has a boss, and quite often uh, the Attorney General of the United States is the fall guy for whatever might be going on domestically or nationally in terms of justice or safety issues. We don't have that at the state AG level, and we don't have a boss. So it's so much easier to get things done at the state level. There's not the levels of bureaucracy, so if you want to do an initiative,
1: you can get that done. Do you think a case can be made that the job can somehow be split up or is would there be any value in saying all right here are guys who sort of run the day-in day-out business of government and here's the guy who sets the agenda here's the guy who decides these are things that we're going to make a priority to prosecute or does it all have to be tied up?
0: I think it's it all, all all is tied up. It probably should be tied up and it's really not as dysfunctional as it might seem. Yes, it's a huge bureaucracy. But the fact of the matter is, you know, in terms of the day to day law enforcement in the United States, the ninety four US attorneys do that job. That of course frees up the attorney general to do exactly what you're talking about, which is the policy making, the broader sweeping issues. I mean, I'm, I'm in a conference right now on sexual assault on college campuses, and that is something that, you know, the federal government and, and the U.S. Attorney General has started to engage in as well. During this administration, during our Holder's administration, there's never been a closer relationship between the federal government um, and the Attorney General of the United States and the Attorneys General of the United States, the 50 of us. So, that is something that I think is unprecedented, and it's real. I mean, it's a real, it's, it's a real partnership with real results that we've never seen before. In a bipartisan way, by the way, Democrats, if you were talking to a Republican, I happen to be a Democrat, but if you were talking to a Republican attorney general, he or she would say the same thing.
1: Who sets the agenda more, the states or the feds? Oh, there's no question the states do.
0: I mean, you know, all the actions of the states. I mean, look, in the federal government, the, these guys can't agree whether, you know, that today is Tuesday. The attorney general of the United States... Is setting federal agenda at some level, but even that agenda has to have the numbers of checks and balances with president, you know, the White House, the legislature. You know, that you can want to do something, but often it takes legislation. Often it takes money, and you have to beg for both.
1: Now. I had on Alberto Gonzalez on the other day, and I presented to him my theory that of all cabinet positions, the attorney general really is the biggest lightning rod. Uh, A Republican might roll his eyes at Joe Biden, but he really flared his nostrils at Eric Holder. Is that part and parcel of the job? Is that because he, or it's not she, but in the past it has been a she, you know, she is sort of the, um, you know, Thor's hammer of the president, the one who actually gets things done, and those things are going to sometimes get the other side upset? Well, there's no
0: question it's the lightning rod of the cabinet. And if you just look back through our history, you know, when was the last person that left that office who, you know, has left to the proverbial or literal ticker tape parade? I mean, it's just not—nobody leaves there completely unscathed. Eric Holder, in my view— has been one of the, the greatest attorneys general of certainly of our time and, and maybe, you know, throughout the history of, of in terms of what he's been able to accomplish and the way in which he's accomplished it. No, nevertheless, it is a lightning rod. Right now, why is that? Uh, yes, it's a little bit of what you were talking about, sort of the burden gets shifted from the White House and, and that to the attorney general, but it's also you're dealing with controversial issues. I mean, what is the right answer in Ferguson? What is the right answer when, you know, tens of thousands of, of, of people from, you know, South American countries show up at our doorstep. Well, there's some The issues that actually make it to the level of the Attorney General of the United States, there's no easy answer. Different people have different views, and most of those views are uninformed because they don't know a lot of it is because it's, it's top secret and it's classified or what have you, or there's different stories. Very few people really concern themselves with what, what the tariffs are in some other country or what the toll should be. And there rarely is a right answer that's clear to everybody.
1: Now, you were an assistant U.S. attorney in the 90s. You're not just an attorney general. You're the head of the U.S. Association of Attorney Generals. Do you have any insight? Yes, I know, hubristic to give advice to the office or whoever would further hold the office, but I'm actually not asking about the person, would you have any insight or advice to reforms around the office of U.S. Attorney General that would help everyone?
0: Well, I I do think that the relationship of the U.S. Attorney General with Attorneys General throughout the United States, the DAs throughout the United States, and the State Attorneys General, that relationship... Could be stronger. It used to be a little bit stronger. It should remain stronger because I think that when most people are thinking about justice issues and crime issues, they're thinking about what's going on in their neighborhood and in their city and on their streets. And the fact of the matter is, while the Attorney General of the United States is the figurehead for justice in the United States in some level, the real action is on the streets and at home. And so the relate that that relationship I think should be bolstered, particularly with the local DA and the United States Attorney General so Uh, I would recommend that.
1: Well, I'll suggest another thing that complicates the office, and that's at the national level, there's just so much scalp taking. I think of uh, that incident that you went through where uh, there was the House party that your son attended, underage drinking, and you had seen it and didn't intervene. We don't have to go over that whole thing. I just say it to orient our listeners. But there you are still as attorney general. uh, From what I know, you enjoy good approval ratings. I just think if that happened and you were the U.S. attorney general, I mean, there would be an unbelievable drumbeat to get you out of office.
0: Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, it, it depends on the circumstances. Obviously, if there was something that somebody did wrong, I mean, these were, you know, 20-year-old college kids having, where some kids at the party were having a beer during beach week, you know, and right. that's, and of course, you know, people are like, well, you're the Attorney General, you should have done something different, you know, no one really would have probably done much different other than, you know, teach your kids and be open and honest about the relationship that we have with our college-age kids and, you know, I am dropping him off at college six, seven weeks later, and there's going to be beer there as well. I'm not going to not send my kid to college. So, I mean, people understand
1: the circumstances. Well, you're right. But people understand the circumstances, and that might seem like a good, good one, explanation. No, just, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, if you, if you were at the national level, the heat on you would be 50 times as much as it you It would
0: talk. be. It would be. On the other hand, I think the point that you make, which is actually something that I think Eric Holder has particularly excelled in, which is being open and honest with people.
1: Last question. Are you a proponent of the plural of attorney general being attorneys general?
0: <laughs> uh, my, my, my wife says it's, act, it's it's accurate to say attorneys general. It does sound uh, goofy, but um, I think that's what it's supposed to be, so I'll, I'll stick with it.
1: You would not enforce laws if they were on the books to change that?
0: To change the name of attorneys general? To attorney, attorney generals, generals,
1: like regular humans might say?
0: Uh, no, I think i am I'd go with it either way. I think that you know I think that's a form over substance deal.
1: Showing wise prosecutorial discretion in that matter is Douglas Gansler, the Attorney General of the State of Maryland. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. These days you could do practically everything on demand. Let's say you saw a tree and you wanted the leaves to come off the tree. Well, you could demand it. And the leaves would come off the tree. Okay, that's not true. But everything that relates to service, or someone is going to give you a service that you pay for, well, we're not going to wait around for that guy. We could do it ourselves, on demand, like, say, a podcast. Whenever you want to hear me, here I am, talking to you, like a talky little monkey. But what about the post office? No talky little monkey are they. No, they make you come when they're open, and they kick you out when they're closed. Except if you have this workaround that I know about, and it is called Stamps.com. Anything you could do at the post office, you could do right from your desk with Stamps.com. Like buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. But wait, don't I need to weigh it? Don't I need a scale? They'll give you a scale. Don't I need postage? Up to $55 in free postage. How much is the bonus offer? It's a $110 bonus offer. It's a no-risk trial. You go to stamps.com, use the promo code the gist, and you qualify for that special offer. So don't wait. Again, go to stamps.com. There's a little microphone icon. It's an old style microphone. We use better, newer microphones, but just work with the fiction of this. There's a little microphone icon in the corner. You click on it, you type in the gist, you get that free offer I'm talking about free scale, free mail scale. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. So the other day I was reading an article in the New York Times and it was about how peeps the easter candy wants to be something other than the easter candy which I thought was a good enough idea. Then I came across a quote, a very a very learned quote from a woman named Sibelle May who runs a candy blog and then I got the idea, you know, Sibelle May and the candy blog seems a lot bigger. The whole the whole candy blog just seems bigger than peeps. So I was going to recommend that my friend Dan Pashman, who does the Sporkful podcast interviewer. And then I said, what am I nuts? I want to interview Sabelle May about the world of candy and the candy blog. So hello, Sabelle.
2: (laughs) Hello. That's an awesome intro. That's great.
1: well, Well, we'll see how it works. So let's start with the peeps. Okay. I'm going to give you my opinion. I think that there are some candies that society has decided they're holiday-only candies for one reason or another. I think peeps work well as holiday-only. I think the maker of peeps might be getting a little greedy trying to extend peeps to other times other than Easter. What are your thoughts just in general about the effort to expand peeps? And then we'll talk about the execution.
2: Well, I'm not opposed to expanding peeps into other parts of the year because let's think about it. There's not a whole lot of marshmallow opportunities out there for people who like marshmallows. There's the campfire-style marshmallows, which are coated in, you know, that little chalky substance. So these are, you know, sugar-coated marshmallows. So if you want them all year round, wouldn't you want them to be all year round?
1: In actually executing the year-round peep plan, they're doing a couple things different from what they usually do with the Easter peeps. Why don't you tell us about that?
2: Well, uh, one of them is they're smaller. They're they're just uh, maybe a third the size of a regular peep. So it's uh, one pop in your mouth instead of biting it in half, mm-hmm. which gets rid of kind of the sticky factor of them. Yeah. Uh, they're packaged in a reclosable a little bag, which means that they don't get stale, which some people may actually find is not a positive attribute because we like stale peeps, and they're not conjoined. Um, Peeps are usually show up in a row of five, and when you pull them apart, there's a little sticky spot from where they were molded together with their brethren. And uh, these are all individual peeps.
1: Uh, if people are going to get nostalgic about peeps and how they do stick together, I mean, people love the parts of candy that don't even work as the makers intended for them to work. You, you don't think stickiness is uh, harkens back to a childhood, a sticky handed childhood and has a certain appeal to it?
2: Oh, absolutely. And part of what I like about marshmallows is the fact that they do stick to other things. I do a whole thing on my blog with peeps where I pull them apart and stick them to other candies in order to create a new um, sort of flavor sensation. So you can stick them to mini M&Ms or crushed up potato chips if that's what you're into.
1: Yeah. So you also mentioned that peeps were really polarizing, candy corns polarizing, Necco wafers are polarizing. I guess they're polarizing because none of them taste good. All right, that's my opinion. But why are they polarizing? What else is polarizing?
2: Um, That is why they're polarizing is because (laughs) a lot of people don't think they taste good. Circus peanuts are another one. (laughs) See?
1: (laughs) Um, What are some of the other big debates that are going on on the candy blog besides the polarizing they taste good, they don't taste good debates?
2: I'd say this year the biggest debate we've got going on is uh, Skittles, you know, the little bite sized uh, chewy candies that yeah. are, have sugar coating on them. They changed one of the flavors. Their green Skittle was introduced as lime way back when. And just last year they switched it out to green apple, which uh-huh. is a, a more popular flavor in polling. And many people are upset that the lime Skittle has disappeared.
1: Is this a big trend in candy? Is lime going away and green lime apple Lime is going away. You, really? you
2: do not find lime as much in candies. In fact, for a while, they took it out of the Necco wafers, although they did bring it back. In Sweet Tarts, uh, lime was replaced with green apple probably at the end of the last century, but that was a replacement. And I think Lifesavers doesn't have them anymore either.
1: Huh. What are the other flavor trends in candy?
2: Oh, there's the addition of savory elements, like a lot of the sea salt caramels and sea salt and chocolate. And then there's uh, adding chili and other hot pepper flavors, something that you see in Central American flavors. Yeah. And it's kind of uh, come north of the border.
1: And now that's huge with snacks and it's huge with Cheetos. I think it might be a flash, even though the demography of America is changing, even though the demographics of America are changing. I think it might be a flash in the pan with candy. I think wedding hotness to sweetness might not be something that's more than temporary. But what do you think?
2: Oh, I, I think it will always remain sort of a niche item. There are people who are always going to want it, just like, you know, some people don't like licorice, some people don't like cinnamon. They'll, they're never going to be quite as broad a flavor as peppermint or cherry, but they'll still be around.
1: When did the candy blog start?
2: 2005.
1: And over that time, what have been the big changes you've chronicled?
2: Basically, there's been a lot of consolidation in the corporations that run candy, but also a kind of a resurgence of nostalgia. So even the older companies that have iconic brands, they are continuing um, to produce those chocolate bars, those candy bars, those candies, and even candies that have died out have come back from the dead, which is kind of nice to see.
1: Which are some zombie candies. (laughs)
2: Well, the Bar Nun, which was a Hershey's uh, candy bar from the 80s, has is coming back. Um, wacky wafers are supposed to come back. Things like Astro Pops mm-hmm. have come back and have done pretty well. And some companies that had brands that were kind of languishing have shuffled them around, so um, they're a little bit easier to find in certain markets. Places like Cracker Barrel are a great place to find Candies like that, that uh, may only get a short run every once in a while, but you'll be able to find them pretty faithfully there.
1: Right. Has your deep research into this field yielded any truisms, any insights, any, any commonalities between what makes a great candy and what makes a bad candy?
2: I think that what makes a great candy, first of all, is good quality candy. But that's not always true. Sometimes the worst quality candy is what we enjoy the most. The Altoid that fell out of the box that's at the bottom of your purse is sometimes the best candy you can have. One of my the ways my obsession has uh, shown itself in the candy blog is there's a little stats box at the bottom of every candy. And for a long time, I thought that it would reveal the secret of candy, that I would track how much it cost and what my rating was and how many calories per ounce there were, and that somewhere in there, after thousands of products, I would find the magic formula that if I paid $3 for something and it had 147 calories per ounce, that would be The perfect candy.
1: Do you think that it remains elusive or has that failure to find the magic formula or something akin to a close empirical correlation between these numbers and greatness, does that tell us something about candy in and of itself?
2: Candy is huge. I think that's the biggest thing I've learned is that for everything that I think I've solved, that I've tried, it will change. I will change. There's just always going to be more candy and there's going to be more ways to experience it. So... In a way, it's a great quest to have because it's never going to end.
1: Sibel May is the creator and founder of The Candy Blog, candyblog.net. Thank you, Sibel. Thank you. And now the spiel. I have a cold, a little sneeze, a little sniffle. But it does give me a good idea for a podcast. Actually, two good ideas. One, I may have mentioned before, it's called Good Idea for a Podcast. Every podcast will be pitching good ideas for a podcast. Because you don't really want to listen to a whole podcast. You just like to hear the good idea for the podcast. Week in and week out, it gets a little draining. But if someone says to you, hey, I have this good idea for a podcast, you'd perk up. So here's my good idea for a podcast. Different people sneeze and cough, and then a panel tries to guess their age, their gender, and the diagnosis. And the panel could be a medical professional or an alternative healer or a school bus driver. Maybe this is an element in an overall bigger podcast called Diagnosis. People love Diagnosis. But the sneeze thing, it has legs. Anyway, I mentioned this because I was buying tissues today. What the industry calls facial tissues, what everyone else I know calls tissues, or sometimes Kleenex. And I saw that Isaac Mizrahi, the designer Isaac Mizrahi, has teamed up with Kleenex to offer designer tissues. Isaac Mizrahi designer tissues, or at least designer boxes. An official press release hypes this collection of tissue boxes, as the brand, already known for novel oval and fruit-inspired wedge boxes, looks to take its design to the next level. I would posit for Mizrahi, this is indeed the next level, just not the next level up. Tissues. Now, what does this do for Isaac Mizrahi's clothing line? Oh my God, I love your dress. It's an Isaac Mizrahi. No way! I just blew my nose in an Isaac Mizrahi this morning. How funny. I mean, what designer thinks, you know what accessory would go well with my fall line? Phlegm. Look. If you think I'm too easily eschewing when others are a-chewing, if you think I'm literally looking down my nose at these products, listen to how they're positioned by the brand manager. The designs debuted at an event in New York where catwalk or Kleenex sweepstake winners could meet Mr. Mizrahi. Entrants were shown a series of paired photographs and asked to guess which one is the design of a dress and which is the design of a Kleenex. Let me offer a hint. The one without the mucus stain, that's the dress. They're, quote, thought provoking, says Anna Ellidge, brand manager. I guess that is true. They provoked these thoughts in me, didn't they? Here's some more of what they say. The stepped-up design focus comes as Kleenex faces a cold and flu season that's been slower to materialize than last year's unusually heavy one. So this got me to thinking, you know, we don't think of Kleenex this way. We think of them as our friend to combat colds. But you know what Kleenex wants? Kleenex wants colds. Kleenex roots for flu. And Isaac Mizrahi is their point man in this effort. Here's another thing that Anna Elledge said. Even though colds and flu are down from last year, she says sniffles are on the upswing nationally. We encourage people to buy in advance and be prepared. There is no way... That Kleenex knows this. She's making that up. They do not have a sniffles indicator. But listen, I'm sure what Isaac Mizrahi got paid was nothing to sneeze at. And if you saw the documentary about Mizrahi called Unzipped, you know he's a compelling guy. And he was up and he was down and he like lost all his money. And so what he's doing is good for him. And you know what it is? It's something called maintaining his celebrity. And you think it's an easy thing to do, but it's not. Remember this, being a celebrity seems like fun, not that much fun. There's so much scrutiny, there's so much time pressure, it's not always easy to monetize your celebrity. In fact, I would advise most people not to be celebrities, but for this one fact, it is your ticket to a land the few can dream of. You are one of the select few that have access to a special status in our culture, because if you're a celebrity, and only if you're a celebrity, you can one day become a former celebrity. And being a former celebrity is better than even having an IRA because you can start drawing upon it before you turn 65. Here, three former celebrities for Wendy's new barbecue pork or something.
0: Hi, I'm a celebrity. And these are just a few of the geographically underprivileged places where millions of Americans don't have easy access to quality barbecue.
1: Along with Alfonso Rivera, there's Ralph Machio, identified as martial artist of sorts, and former professional wrestler Steve Austin, the Stone Cold one. These guys are doing great. They're cashing in on their former celebrity status. They're also burnishing their celebrity. They're not being asked to lose weight in an embarrassing way. They're not being asked to check into rehab. They could keep their stars shining. Now, all of them were once huge. Well, actually, Machio and Austin were huge. You might not realize this about Stone Cold Steve Austin. That guy was huge. But Ribeiro, I think this guy is playing it well. Never was really the star of his own show, was friends with Ricky Schroeder on a show, was friends with Will Smith on a show, had that one dance, that Carlton dance that everyone knows. But, you know, he's big enough that he definitely qualifies as a former celebrity. And that's what I'm thinking of. What's that line? What's that line of big enough celebrity that you get to be a former celebrity? Not the kind of former celebrity that is allowed to go to celebrity rehab. That's no former celebrity celebrity at all. I'm talking someone who could monetize their celebrity. In baseball, there's this concept known as the Mendoza line. It's named after bad hitter Mario Mendoza, whose lifetime batting average was 215. We need a celebrity equivalent. Let's call it the Amorosa line. So named after that reality show contestant, Amorosa, who was on The Apprentice. But actually, thinking about it, Amorosa doesn't qualify because we never really liked Amorosa. You have to have certain qualities. One is, at one point we have to like you. Also, as soon as you say your name, or your character's name, we have to know exactly who you were. It helps to be part of one iconic series. You could have a whole body of work, but if you were one thing, and we identify with that thing when we were children, Alfonso Rivera, Ralph Macchio, kids loved all those guys. Like, Ralph Macchio was in a lot of movies, but you know what Ralph Macchio was? Ralph Macchio was the karate kid. And that's what you need. And therefore, I think maybe, what I was once calling the Amoroso line, maybe it's the cousin Oliver from the Brady Bunch. Line. I mean, he was cousin Oliver, right? He was from the Brady Bunch. But I looked up this guy, Robbie Wrist. He's still working today. He's doing voiceover work for um, Doc McStuffins. I think he plays the dragon. I didn't even know that. My kids watch Doc McStuffins. So if he really were big enough to cash in on his former celebrity, he'd be doing it. So experience doesn't bear out that Robbie Rist can be that iconic former celebrity. Then I was thinking, all right, all right, an iconic show. Kids like it. This is little After my time. So there was a show called Boy Meets World. Andrea, do you remember Boy Meets World? Duh. And what was the female character on Boy Meets World? Do you remember her name? Uh, Topanga. Topanga, that's right. Her name is Danielle Fischel, or Fischel. And I think she is right at that celebrity line, because if a Mentos commercial came on, and she said, Hi, you may remember me as Topanga from Boy Meets World, would it register with you?
0: Yeah, I think your eyes can't look away when you recognize a face.
1: That's it. So there we have it. I think she is exactly the cusp, the cutoff for a big enough celebrity that you can be a former celebrity. We'll have to call it the Topanga line and sadly jettison our second runner-up. Yes, the Maria Conchita Alonso line. We hardly knew you. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is producer of Slate Podcast. She's partial to the Zecco Sky Bar zombie food, the chocolate mold, is well-made, with an anatomically accurate human heart in the center. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Right now, he's scouring stores for Brock's Christmas Nougat Mix, in which logs of nougat are covered in flavor, then stacked together to form the image inside, which creates a much larger log. You can listen in SoundCloud. You go to iTunes. We're on Yo! Get that app, Yo! Subscribe to Podcast. When we're ready to go, we'll Yo! You go to slate.com slash just email to sign up for our daily email and you can play the show off of our email. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash slate gist. our Twitter feed is slate gist. I want to plug the hang up and listen live show October 8th in Brooklyn Galapagos art space. We have a guest Roy Blunt Jr., a panelist on wait, wait, don't tell me great sports journalist wrote a great book about the Pittsburgh Steelers, a few bricks shy of a load. He'll be joining us on October 8th in Brooklyn. Come on out for that. The gist, like the Red Bird soft hot cinnamon puffs, has a floral honey note to them, but they're also quite cinnamony. Most importantly, it's texture. They're rather hard when first made, but if you prefer a softer gist, open the package and wait. You'll see, and thanks for listening.
2: I'm Hannah Rosen.
1: This week on the Double X Gab Fest, we're going to talk about Lena Dunham's new book, Not That Kind of Girl. Can the girl who shows us everything on TV tell us anything we don't already know about her? Find out on Wednesday's Double X Gab Fest. Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.